0: Our message this morning is titled, Breaking the Bread of Life. Brother Matt Thomas has asked I read to you from John 6, verses 47 to 54. John 6, 47 to 54. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day.
1: A couple of reasons why we're going to give special attention to the Lord's Supper this morning. First of all, Isaiah 53, in our study of it this last week, begs it. As he looked forward to the coming birth, life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it brings a special significance to what we're remembering at the Lord's table. So it's a good time for it. The second reason is because somebody asked a question in May, can we have a sermon dealing with the Lord's Supper? And we have not forgotten you, whoever you were. And so uh, we're going to uh, take some time. <clears throat> this will also serve as just presiding over the table, if you will. Um, and so our, our men serving will, will just be able to come up and, and serve at the time that we partake. But I hope to, to set a tone in your mind of some things that I think are, are critical I'd like to look at some things, maybe I haven't at least uh, heard from the pulpit or studied myself before that I thought were of special interest uh, to me and, and hopefully to you, but I wanted to stand down here this morning for a couple of reasons. One is just to, to remind you, you know, heaven forbid you drift off and think about something else during the sermon, right? To remind you that this is, this is going to be about the Lord's table today, but also the personal and close nature of this meal and I want you to think about the fact that that we're coming together to a table to dine and I didn't want to be up there today so It would be more appropriate to be down here when once we were strangers and foreigners with no hope and without God in the world through Jesus Christ Christians are now members of the household of God and citizens in his kingdom John in awe said, behold what manner of love this is, that God should call us children of God in 1 John chapter 3. There are other avenues of worship which we've already partaken of this morning, we've already been drawn into this morning, which bring us close to God. They bring us into His throne room, if you will. When we pray, we approach the throne of God, for example. When we are studying like this this morning, your respect comes before God's presence in His throne room, if you will. But there is only one avenue of worship which we're invited to join together like this and to come into the personal space of God's presence at a table with the King. This is an invitation a very special privilege, a very close communion. And as we study through some of the Scriptures from the Old Testament, and we see the shadowing and foreshadowing, the types and antitypes, if you will, the figures of Christ and the sacrifices and how they come to be fulfilled in Christ, I think you'll see some of the very important wording in the Old Testament about God being among them and dwelling with them, as they partake of the sacrifices and eat of the flesh of those sacrifices. It's marvelous. The institution of the Lord's Supper, if we can go, our uh, iPad's not working this morning, so Seth and I are just going to try to do this, maybe by proxy, um, if that can be advanced to the uh, first one. If not, I'll tell you what they are. We're going to talk about the institution of the supper in the upper room first of all because some of you may not be aware of what we're talking about. There may be some visiting here. There may be some that just need to be recalled uh, to mind about this Last Supper of Jesus, which took place just hours before His crucifixion, on the eve before. It began as a Jewish Passover observance. Passover was a week-long feast where the Jews were to rid from their households all leavening. All leavening. And then on the seventh day of that feast, they were to take a lamb which they selected on the second day of the feast and to hold it for five days. They were to take that lamb and to offer it as a sacrifice to God, to kill it, to roast it in the fire, and to eat it hastily in observance of that fateful night of the tenth plague in Egypt, which God with a mighty hand delivered Israel out of the bondage to the Egyptians, that harsh and cruel bondage. And he, he delivered them. And they were to eat it hastily, with a belt strapped around them as if they were ready to travel. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs, which were to remind them of the, of the bitterness of their affliction. And they were to eat it with unleavened bread. And that leavening, we'll see, comes to be uh, a symbol of sin in the Bible comes out very vividly in the New Testament, especially in the culmination of Paul who says to the church, get rid of of the leavening among you. And so they're eating this meal with a very specific deliverance in mind. And so while all the observances and symbolism of the Old Testament ultimately point to Christ in some way, and we're seeing that come out in these readings through this year, and we're pointing these things out in the sermons and lessons and discussion we're having, that all of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. It's about Him. While that's the case, Jesus revealed in this Passover meal on that, what I believe to be Thursday night, before His death, specific meaning, and He's going to reinterpret it to mean that this bread is going to symbolize something new I want you to remember, this Wine, this fruit of the vine, is going to symbolize something new. I want you to remember it. And so, He wants us to do this in remembrance of Him. Luke chapter 22, I'm going to use this account uh, to read to you right now. When the hour had come, He sat down and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffered. For I say to you, I'll no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took, his, uh, took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. So it's in this messianic interpretation that we we usher in this memorial each week, that we can uh, observe it with him in this manner. But let's take a little closer look at what it means to do this in remembrance of me, shall we? Let's see how we're doing here. Good. So first of all, it was instituted on the night before his the night of His betrayal, the night before His crucifixion. Second of all, in observance of that Passover, that's still going to continue on as a commemoration, a commemoration of deliverance, in fact. But He's going to give new meaning to the bread. The reference that Jesus made to the bread draws its meaning from three important references in the Old Testament. Three. The first is the unleavened bread of the Passover which, as they were sitting at the meal, had a very immediate uh, and and concrete connection that those disciples could have made to the Passover. And uh, he draws from Exodus 13, specifically verse 7, which the congregation was to share together in the memorial of that night where God brought them out of bondage and speedily delivered them. And uh, they didn't even have time for the bread to rise. He said, I don't, I don't want you to leaven anything because you won't have time to let it rise to eat this meal. You need to eat it as is and you need to carry the rest of it with you as you go. So this is the idea of the, of the hasty, speedy deliverance that happened that night. And so the Jews would keep this Passover feast, you know, belt girded and, 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 and to uh, um, reenact, if you will, uh, that, that night. But the bread is a reminder of God's deliverance from bondage to sin and that leavening was was come to be known as uh, sinful. And so, to rid the leaven from among you before you partake. Now, this is going to be something I want you to hold on to for a later part in the sermon. To rid the leavening from among you before you partake. It's going to be really important. Secondly, the manna. From God, the manna from above, which God said, I will rain down manna from above for you while they were traveling in the wilderness to this place that God had promised Abraham and he was taking them to this place. They complained, they were hungry, they started missing some of the food they had back in Egypt, they did eat well um, for the most part, many of them ate pretty well of the abundance of their work, but they were, they were in hard labor. Probably anything would have tasted good to them if they were working like they were working all day, right? Have you ever had some food that you said, otherwise, this would, be, this would be pretty bad, but I'm so hungry, I don't care? Maybe some of that really good food they were missing was just average food, and they were really hungry, like the leeks and onions and all this stuff. I don't eat that stuff plain. Monica does sometimes, so grab an onion and eat it, but I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't miss it. But the idea of the bitterness is brought out, but also they started missing the fact that they just had food. And God said, I'll I'll give you manna from above. And so the unleavened bread was to remind them of deliverance. What about the manna? The manna was life sustenance. It was to keep them alive in a place where they otherwise would have died. I want you to make some of these spiritual interpretations on your own. The manna from above was to keep them alive in a place that was devoid of good food. They would have starved to death had it not been for God feeding them. Make that spiritual application. And so, Jesus explained it in the reading of John 6, verses 48 through 51, the first part of the scripture reading, where he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. It kept them alive at the time. So there was no, nothing wrong with the bread. In fact, it was, it was probably very nourishing. They had never seen anything like it. And it's probably because God packed the nourishment that they needed for their bodies in that whatever. And that's the literal interpretation of manna. Whatever this is. We have a candy bar like that, don't we? It's called McCall It's been around for a while now. I remember when it first came out of that old... What you would call it? Like you eat it and you go, oh, I don't know how to describe this thing, <laughs> right? And so it was called whatever. But it was no doubt uh, adequate to sustain their lives. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate of the man in the wilderness and died, but this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, verse 51, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So, disciples, don't look for bread coming down from heaven that's going to somehow have an eternal uh, you know, an eternal aspect to where you can eat it and you're just going to live forever. He said, now, I am the bread, and actually my carnal body is going to be something that you take part of, and it's going to keep you alive forever. Wow. So as the manna was life-sustaining in the wilderness, so it sustains Christians today. When did they eat that manna? Every day. When was it provided for them anew? Every morning. Every morning, God provided. You think about that spiritual application too. Christ, every day. In the morning, taking part all through the day, being sustained by Him. The third thing is the grain offering that was offered without leaven. Let there be no leaven in any of the grain offerings which you offer. Don't add honey. Don't add anything except this fine flour and the oil that you're going to need to bake it with. Offer it with salt too, which I'm not going to chase down this morning. Offer all your offerings with salt. But he said, let the priest take of this offering and give a memorial portion to the Lord. That's interesting. This is out of Leviticus chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Let the priest give the Lord his memorial portion of the bread, and then let the priests all partake together of the remainder of that offering, and eat it being purified, being consecrated beforehand. Eat it together in a holy place. It's awfully interesting, isn't it? And so these three references, the unleavened bread of the Passover, the manna from above, and the grain offerings are all pulled in by Jesus to to say, I'm fulfilling all of these things. The first and the best of their harvest was to be offered to God. Now that's something we need to remember when we come to the part of our worship where we give. Of the first and the best, of the first fruits of all of our prosperity. So, what about the wine? What about the fruit of the vine? Now, in the Bible, just briefly I'll say this, in case you're wondering about wine and fruit of the vine. That word oikos is used throughout the Scriptures to refer to the fruit of the vine at any stage of development. There are references to it while it's still on the vine in grape form called wine. It's translated wine in the Bible references to it being harvested, wine being harvested, wine being threshed uh, or pressed in the wine press, wine being served uh, as new wine, which would not have been fermented, and then wine, which may have had fermentation and and alcoholic um, substance to it, uh, alcoholic body to it. So it can be any of those things, and all we're really left with is the context to interpret whether we think it was alcoholic or non-alcoholic wine all right now we'll see in first corinthians that what the corinthians were using had some alcoholic value to it because a lot of them were really excited to take the lord's supper and they were really excited to drink as much of the lord as, as they could possibly drink because they loved him so much that they got drunk and paul dealt with that and so there were occasions where it was used like this Our brethren in uh, other countries uh, use wine, what we would call wine in America, has about, what, 4% alcohol or something like that in it. And uh, there are brethren around the world that use this in their uh, Lord's Supper. Uh, Make of that what you want. I'm not going to go any farther into that. So when I say wine, I'm talking about the fruit of the vine. And, uh, and it's, appropriate, it's an appropriate use of the word. It can just cause us to trip up because in our culture, when we say wine, we're usually talking about the alcohol, right? And we call the, the rest of it grape juice. Okay, so it's another symbol that Jesus held up at that Passover meal that night. And according to Jewish tradition, it was poured four times during the Passover. And if you notice in the reading in Luke, he said, take this cup and, and uh, pass it amongst you divided amongst you and then after the meal is when he took the cup and said this is the cup of uh, the blood of the new covenant do this in remembrance of me so you could see even in Luke that there were several times that they stopped to drink of the cup it was probably scholars believe it was probably the third cup uh, being shared during this meal that, that the Jews called the cup of thanksgiving or the cup of redemption, that Jesus paused and said, this cup is the cup of the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. But he also pulls from Old Testament references. A couple in this case. First of all, this symbolism of the juice comes not directly from the Passover, but from the drink offering. And in the drink offering, uh, the uh, offerers of the Jews would come to the priests with the first fruits of the fruit of the vine, the first fruits. So we know it was non-alcoholic in that case because it came right off the vine, pressed the best tasting, freshest, just most delicious juice that they had available at that time. That was their pride and joy was the new wine. It was delish. And so they would bring that to the Lord. And uh, uh, in that case, they would pour it out upon the altar to the Lord. Now, there's a couple instances uh, where we see this carried out in the New Testament. One is Paul in his old age saying, I am being poured out as a drink offering before the Lord. Now, he's not saying there, I'm offering my blood. He said, I'm pouring myself out. But Jesus at the Lord's Supper so when he said, this is my blood, which is shed or poured out for many for the remission of sins, those disciples would picture the Jewish priests pouring out the drink offering of firstfruits on the altar. Okay? So they could picture a pouring out, keep that in mind. But more vividly, the other reference that he's drawing from is the blood of the whole burnt offerings sin offering, trespass offering, the blood that would be taken when an animal, in the case of the Old Testament, who was carrying the sins of, of, the, of the one who trespassed, and that animal would be slaughtered at the gate of the tabernacle, and the priest would immediately take the blood that was shed, it was poured out from that animal, and take it into the holy place and sprinkle some upon the altar of incense and sprinkle some out over the altar of burnt offering. And then he would pour out the rest at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And then they would take the flesh of the animal and prepare it for the sacrifice. And then the priest would partake of the sacrifice. That was the priest's sustenance. So when the offerers came and brought these grain offerings and and burnt offerings, God provided for the uh, daily sustenance of the priest to eat the remainder of what was offered in these sacrifices. But picture the pouring out of blood around the base of the altar to God. And he said, this is my blood. So what does that make him? What does that make him? That makes him the sacrifice, doesn't it? So it makes sense now when he says in John 6, 52 through 54, which was the second part of the scripture reading that Gene read for us, that the Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. They should have known when he was referring to eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and he was considered to be the Lamb of God by John the Baptist before he even started his ministry? They should have, if they were listening with listening ears and if they were seeing with eyes that perceived, said, well, then if he is the sacrifice and he pours out his blood and gives his body as the sacrifice, then when we partake, when we consent to accept that sacrifice on our behalf, when I make my life dependent upon His sacrifice. When I give myself wholly to the Lord my God and Jesus as my King, I'm ingesting all of that. It's as if, as if I'm gobbling it up. We say that today. We're, I'm going I'm to eat that up. I'm going to take that in deep. That's the idea here of, of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Thirdly, We've got the bread and the cup being held up, but where is the lamb? <laughs> no guessing here either. So this is a Jewish Passover. He holds up the cup. He holds up the bread. There's lamb before them. What, what of it? I mean, if you, you can probably anticipate the disciples saying, well, what are you going to do with the meat? You got something to say about it? He doesn't. doesn't pick up a piece of lamb. The lamb... Is holding the cup. The Lamb is saying, do this in remembrance of me. I am the Lamb. Paul called him Christ our Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and substantiated what John the Baptist said when Christ first came to him to be baptized. When he pointed, when all the crowds of people were there and he was preaching, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And they identified him, and they began to follow him at that time. And Paul put his stamp of approval on that when he said, Christ is our Passover. He was the Lamb. You're going to enjoy this. He was the Lamb who, on the 10th of Abib, the first month that God declared in the Jewish calendar, on the 10th of the month, would be selected without blemish, a male from their flock, And brought into the house for five days and kept in the house. Not too many of us keep animals in the house anymore, do we? I know some people that have, do, keep animals in the house. Chickens and, you know, not dogs. Like we're used to dogs. We're used to cats. Talking about like farm animals. This lamb was to be brought into the house. What would happen (laughs) If you keep a little lamb of the first year in your house for five days, are you not going to be endeared to that thing? Seriously? They're so cute. (laughs) They're so cute. And he said, bring it into your house for five days because on the seventh day, on the 15th of Abib, at twilight, you're going to need to kill it. He is that lamb that has been endeared to us and who was slain because of our sins. By our hands, if you will. By our hands. How difficult that would have been for them to do that the very first time, let alone for years and years afterwards. He was the Lamb that was slain so that all the members of the household could partake of His flesh. He's the Lamb whose blood was smeared on the wooden mantle of the door of the believer's house. Picture that spiritually, applying that blood across the door of your house. He is the Lamb whose blood, when observed by the angel of death as He moved over the houses in the land of Egypt, observed His blood and moved past and spared from the wrath of God all of those who were partakers of the Lamb in the house in that one place. He passed over them in judgment. And all those who did not have the Lamb of God and the, and the blood of the sacrifice on the door of their doorposts suffered the judgment of God that night. And so, we too today will be passed over in judgment if God looks upon us and spiritually sees that we have been partakers of His flesh and of His blood, that we have accepted the offering of the Lamb of God and His blood being spilt for us over my house. Now, when I'm saying that, I'm not talking about the Thomas residence. Now, I'm talking about Matt Thomas's house. And we can apply that here as a body over our house. But you need to apply that individually, spiritually. When God looks at me, will He see the blood there? Or have I been so busy being embarrassed to be a Christian that I've kind of gone out and washed it off so that God wouldn't even recognize my household? He wouldn't say to me, I know you. Maybe that's why so many, Jesus said, will say, Lord, Lord, in that day, and will say, I never knew you. I didn't see the blood on your doorpost. I know you went and got baptized, and I know you went to church. I didn't see the blood on your doorpost. He's the lamb of the morning and evening sacrifice who brings us into close communion with God. Listen to Exodus 29, or turn with me better, to Exodus 29, 41 through 45. Now there were two lambs to be offered, one in the morning and one in the evening. I'm going to read about the one in the evening because they were to do the same thing essentially with it as they did in the morning. So, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer with it, listen to this, The grain offering and the drink offering. Offer daily a lamb with the grain offering and the drink offering. For a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Listen closely again. Continually, but listen, where I will meet with you to speak with you. And in verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. That's been carried over, brethren. That's been carried over, friends, to today, where the lamb is offered. He comes into the presence, and there is a grain offering and a drink offering being offered for our continual presence in communion with God is that powerful or what he mentions it's a new covenant so let's move on I'm behind one now I think Seth covered me one there he mentions it's a new covenant so by his sacrifice he said this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many why not all it is shed for all many will receive it not all Many will receive it, not most. And so it's, it's only going to be acceptable to few, but relatively speaking, over the generations of men, there'll be millions and millions of those who accept it. So there'll be many in that sense to, from our perspective who receive this blood. <clears throat> he is <clears throat> the servant whom my Father, Isaiah two six, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, gave as a covenant to the people. He is the blood of the new covenant about which Jeremiah said, quote, chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah said, that the Lord, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers, which is given for many for the remission of sins. (laughs) He's going to make a new covenant. It won't be like the old covenant. It's not going to be an animal that's sacrificed. It's going to be my son. And the offerings are not going to need need to be brought to a a human priesthood, but they'll be offered up to the great high priest who's gone through the veil into the heavens and opened up the veil to us all to commune so closely with him. One reference says, A covenant is a relationship between two people. But the covenant of which Jesus spoke was not between man and man, it was between God and man. That is to say, it was a new relationship between God and man. What Jesus was saying at the Last Supper was this, because of my life and, excuse me, above all, because of my death, a new relationship has become possible between you and God. Excuse me. I did a wedding rehearsal Friday night with a storm coming, so I yelled outside I yelled to beat the rain and the lightning, and it all was coming upon us. It never rained. And then yesterday, I did the wedding outside, and I taught class this morning, so excuse me. The shedding of blood reveals the depth of God's covenant commitment to us through the expense of that one transaction. It's the basis of the meal being a time of solemn observation. Let's look at this last point. Partaking in a worthy manner. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You didn't think we were going to make it through this without going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, did you? Let's begin in verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthian church, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. John, this was not a beautiful thing. This gathering right here was not beautiful. Wonder why. For first of all, he said, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. But there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Yeah, yeah, I I know there's divisions in... Offices and roles and things. It's not these kind of divisions. He said, therefore, verse 20, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Well, yeah, we are. Yeah, here, here here's the bread and here's the vine, uh, fruit of the vine. I mean the wine. He says, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Are you to despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, and He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes, Paul said. Therefore, now listen closely to this, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I'll set in order when I come. Wow, very powerful, very powerful context. Let's make a little bit of meaning of this and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. There's several things brought out here that I believe give meaning to what it means to partake in a worthy manner. To do you justice, you need to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. That's the context of the statement. The whole book. It's those who are claiming to be Christ's living in a manner unworthy to be known as His children. It's the whole book. You get specific when you get to chapter 10, just the chapter before this. And he starts talking about how they all, our fathers in the wilderness, were all partakers. You see this language start to come out. Partakers of that one bread and that one drink in the wilderness who was Christ. He followed them in the wilderness. You remember that context? Or you can look at it while we're talking. I'm just summarizing. I don't have time to go into detail on all this. But he's setting the context, and he said, God fed them with manna from above. They all were partakers, but God wasn't pleased with all of them. They all partook. This is sobering. They all partook. Nevertheless, many of them were chastened by the Lord and were left in the wilderness to die because they were unfaithful because of the idolatry in their hearts. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to worship the Egyptian gods. They were weary of God's presence, holiness. They were weary of traveling with God. They didn't have the patience. They wanted the idols of Egypt. They wanted the idols of the flesh. They were sexually immoral. Um, They were um, selfishly conducting themselves. All this is in chapter 10. You need to read that today. And then when you come to chapter 11, and Paul brings in the Lord's Supper, and he talks about partaking in an unworthy manner, he's directly referring to that context. First of all, that there be no divided hearts among you. We talked a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night about having a united heart that is solely focused on the Lord. That your life is built upon that rock, and that you're ingesting him as your sustenance to live. You're invested in Christ. You're not just taking care of a little compartment of your life called religion and checking it off every week. That you're both feet in. That there's not another idol dissuading you from the Lord himself. This is the manner, first, that he calls to attention. We need to take care of. Are you an idolater? Are there other pursuits in your life that you love more than Jesus Christ? Really, only you and God can answer that. Well, I'm going to skip a section here to get through. Secondly, an unworthy manner refers to the notion that we do not have the love for one another that God has commanded us to have. A new commandment I give you at the Passover meal that night. A new commandment I give you, John chapter 13. That you love one another. Well, that's not new. That's in Leviticus, isn't it? That you love one another as I have loved you. That's how I want you to love one another more intense it involves dying for one another it involves laying down our lives for one another so if if we're to that point we won't be really bickering at each other i won't be able to hold a grudge against you if i'm willing to lay down my life for you i won't be able to hold a grudge against you and so this idea that we are to uh have a sincere love for one another and wait for one another and to see each other on equal terms as brothers and sisters i won't feel like, hey, I can do what I want in the church. This is is my church. This is my my body. I can kind of do what I want. I'm looking over here at the poor, and I'm just kind of thinking a little bit less of them. And when I take the supper, I take a bigger portion and give them a little bit, because surely they they won't mind. They're used to little. These are all the things that were happening in the church. And Paul said, that's not the love that Christ commanded you to love with. You're all brothers and sisters at his kingdom. Someone said to me once, the foot is level at the, at the, excuse me, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all standing on the same ground, and we're all beneath the cross of Christ. He said, You've got to bring that with you. So bring in the passage from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, If you come to bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go and reconcile first. Then come and offer your gift. Why? Because God doesn't want to talk to you while you're hating on somebody. He had John write in 1 John. You can't say, I love God and hate my brother. He says, you need to take care of that first and then come and offer your gift. That's what he's calling for here in the communion is to reconcile. And what's more, if you have committed offenses that you have not made reconciliation to God about. If you have sin in your life and you haven't repented and confessed these sins to God and laid them at His feet and allowed Him to forgive you and are devoting yourself to Him, you need to consider that before you come into the dining presence with Christ and act like everything's okay. I've struggled with that before personally on occasions where I said, I don't even feel worthy to take the Lord's Supper today. And I've swung back and forth on that. I've heard people say, well, nobody's really worthy. It's probably, yeah, okay, that's right. We're, we're all in sin. And we all, ha- we all have sin that we, we commit, and we're continually, unfortunately, committing sin. And so in that sense, you well, I guess I can take the Lord's Supper every week. But I'm praying for forgiveness every day, and I'm repenting. And I'm confessing that sin to God. Therefore, He's faithful and just to forgive my sin, John said in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through chapter 2, verse 3. I'm being reconciled, I'm being saved daily. I'm dying daily, and I'm being reconciled daily if that is my mindset. Now, when I come to the Lord's table now, this is just my personal thinking. Take, take it and, and do with it you want, what, what you want. Uh, Share with me how you think about this, but yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm seeking reconciliation daily with God about it. So when I come to the table, I come in the flesh, I come in human nature, but I ought to have already laid my sins before Him. If not, while we're praying and the communion plates are coming, that's a time to pray and meditate on that. The point being, I want to be considered worthy of that sacrifice. I want to employ that sacrifice so that I can partake with a clear conscience and not have anything against my brother or sister or any person, nor know that they have anything against me, and that's your responsibility to come to me, so that you can partake if I have offended you in some way or anyone here has offended you in some way. So how do you feel emotionally about the Lord's Supper? You know, when we come in a worthy manner, what emotion do you come with? Is it a night of solemn observation? Or is it a a celebration? Have you heard people describe it as both? I've heard people say, it's a celebration. I've heard people say, we can be really sober-minded about this. I think it can be both, depending on the condition of your heart. Do you know what's required? Do you know what the better question is? Do you come thankful Do you come bringing your thank offering? Do you come with reverence? Because from my reverence, from my gratitude for being saved by the blood of Christ, I might on one occasion smile and feel jubilant. And I might on another occasion be brought to tears because how could I sin against such a Lord? I think both of those are okay. But the one thing that always happens is we enjoy some quiet time with God. We enjoy peace with God. Whether there's a tear coming out of someone's eye or another person is over smiling just going, wow, did I come out of darkness into light. This is awesome to sit at the table with the Lord. Both of those are respectful in that way. Just are you grateful? Are you grateful? So there's much to talk about. I'll wrap it up with, with that, but as we approach the table, remember that partaking of the Lord's Supper is a family invitation into His presence. It's a reminder it's a reminder of His deliverance. It's a reminder of the fact that we have life because of him, that He sustains our lives physically but spiritually and we can be grateful for what we have. So with that being said, uh, Mike and Craig are going to bless